Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and I just want to thank you for joining me. Um, I went on a little bit of a vacation. Uh, for those of you who have been listening for a while, you guys know that I'm a social worker. Um, I work as a housing social worker at a family shelter. Um, right before the virus hit, the other housing worker left for a new opportunity so um i had doubled the caseload during the virus uh, and it was pretty difficult for me uh, so i was very overwhelmed um, it's one thing to have one or two difficult clients it's another thing when you have all the difficult clients and you have your regular clients who are going through an extraordinarily difficult circumstance such as a pandemic um, half my clients are in shelter half my clients are outside um, in regular housing. So once I get them housing, I stay on as their case manager for a year. Um, so I was doing uh, food pantry deliveries. I was doing diaper runs uh, with diaper shortages. I was going all over my state to find diapers and formula. Um, a lot of people had uh, babies on special formula. So I was going all over the place trying to find formula. Um, just a lot of chaos and and having double my caseload, it was very difficult and taxing on me. So I waited till the end of summer um, to September to be able to take my vacation so I could take a longer vacation. Uh, I took a week and a half so I could really just relax, take my time, and really do nothing, decompress, and just hang out and binge a lot of TV and uh, put some work on putting some new stuff together. For you guys, uh, those of you may know, I'm working on a new podcast, um, American Policing, Notes on a Scandal, um, and also I am putting together um, a merch line. Um, it will have merch for uh, t-shirts and hoodies for Psych Your Crime, but also there will be some stuff uh, for American Policing as well. Um, so I'm working on that as we speak. And yes, there will be international shipping because I absolutely love and see you. Um, New Zealand, Australia, um, United Kingdom, and Netherlands. Where did you guys come from out of nowhere? Um, like I said, Canada too. Um, I absolutely appreciate my international listeners just as much as my American listeners. Uh, you love and support me. Um, New Zealand, uh, you guys tune in over and over again and have showed me support and love just like everybody else. But I am absolutely blown away by the continuous support by my New Zealand audience. I just never imagined in a million years that I would have a, a strong fan base on the other side of the world so thank you so much it, it means everything to me that you you guys keep listening to me i know i'm not always the most um on-time podcaster i'm going to be working on that making sure that i keep my upload schedule like i said it's kind of been difficult in the pandemic having the workload that i have with my social work job but i'm going to um be better with it they're finding someone else to come work with me um, so my caseload will go down and I will be able to go back to um, every other week with Psycho Crime and then I will be able to go back to um, doing the live uh, podcast of Denver Denisaka Hair and I've also been working on getting uh, guests to join me on the live. Um, I've been reaching out to um, some YouTubers to um, come and join me on the live on Dumber Than a Sack of Hair. So I'm going to be adding um, people in to make it uh, more conversational and funner. And um, so I've just been working on expanding things and just making things funner and broadening things. And um, I just wanted to share um, how I've been working on just broadening things up for everyone and um, giving back to you guys because as I say every time um, I open this up, I never ever thought that this many people would listen to me. I always just thought that it would maybe be a couple people in my family and that's it. 
So the fact that um, this many people have listened and that I've been able to make this many episodes is amazing to me. And so I want to continue to create content for you and uh, create merchandise and things to show how much I appreciate your support. And so this week, we are going to look at the case of Greg Kelly. He was a Travis County, Texas teen who was falsely convicted of child molestation. Now, the reason we're going to look into this case is because the DA, Rosemary Lemberg, um, determined that uh, she was uh, the DA for the Dan and Fran Keller case that we covered in Blood in the Kool-Aid. And this is the county that is right next door to the county that Greg Kelly um, was convicted in. Now, if you remember, the Kellers uh, were convicted of sexually assaulting a three-year-old girl in 1992, and they were sentenced to 48 years. Now, in 2015, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned their convictions because the physician who gave the only scientific evidence against them at trial realized that he was wrong. During a 2013 hearing, the emergency room doctor, Michael Mao, testified he was wrong when he stated that the Keller's trial, um, he found tears in the girl's hymen that indicated she was sexually abused. Years later, he went to a medical conference where he learned that such tears were normal part of female genitalia. So just think about that for a moment. You, as in a parent, Take your child to an emergency room. You are told by a doctor that the tearing in her vagina means she's sexually abused. And then, like 10 years later, not even, almost, yeah, about 10 years later, 20 years later, 20 years later, you find out that that's just the normal part of being a girl. That your child was actually not sexually abused. That's very very scary he contacted austin police but was rebuffed by the detective and the detective told him that the kellers were absolutely guilty mal testified that his medical opinion had fundamentally changed after that hearing travis county district attorney rosemary lemberg agreed that the kellers had not received a fair trial they were released on a signature pond later that year but were not cleared, meaning that they were registered as sex offenders and were not entitled to compensation under the state law because they were not exonerated. Now, because they were registered as sex offenders, because they were not exonerated, they had difficulty getting housing because they had felonies, they were registered as sex offenders, they had difficulty getting jobs, they had difficulty getting insurance, their lives were completely destroyed. They also ran the risk of being prosecuted again. So it was next to impossible for them to rebuild their lives. So this is when attorney Keith Hampton stepped in. He worked for years without pay, trying to gain a release for the Kellers. And then when a new district attorney, Margaret Moore, was elected, she set up a conviction integrity unit and the Kellers became the unit's first case. On June 20th, 2017, Moore filed documents in court stating that there is absolutely no credible evidence that the Kellers had ever committed any type of a crime and that she believed that exoneration was the only just outcome. The court agreed and they were ruled innocent on August 22nd, 2017. They received the first of two checks that totaled $3.4 million in compensation for spending over two decades in prison. The now divorced couple will also receive the equivalent amount in an annuity with annual payments of $152,200 under Texas wrongful conviction compensation statute. Now, many people don't know that Texas actually has a formula for wrongful convictions because they've wrongfully convicted so many people. 
So the formula, you get a, a payout when you're released and then you get a certain amount of, you get the equivalent amount broken up over a certain amount of years or depending on what you were in for, you also get a certain amount of money each year until you die as long as you don't get convicted of another felony. So they have it, it's really sad that they have it down to a science and they're not the only state. New York State also has the same setup because they have wrongfully convicted so many people. So this is also another reason that I felt the need to do the podcast, um, American Policing Notes on a Scandal, because when you have so many people who get wrongfully convicted that the justice system feels the need to create a formula to figure out how to compensate you for how they wronged you, we have a problem. So in April 2013, motorists saw the district attorney, uh, Rosemary Lumberg, driving in a bike lane for over a mile on a southbound FM 620, which is a highway. And at one point, she was veering into oncoming traffic on the Comanche Trail. When pulled over at an Austin Church parking lot, police found an open vodka bottle on her passenger side seat. Her first blood alcohol level was 0.239, which is three times the legal limit. Lemberg was taken into custody and while incarcerated, officials claimed she was uncooperative and aggressive and had to be restrained with leg irons, handcuffs, and a spit mask. Now, as someone who's worked juvenile inpatient treatment, I want you to understand how difficult it can be to put an uncooperative person in leg irons, handcuffs, let alone a spit mask. So to put them in leg irons, someone has to hold them. You have to put them in what's called a basket hold. So you have to come around the back and hold their arms while someone holds their legs to put the leg irons on them. And then someone has to put them in the cuff position to put the cuffs on them. Then you have to put the spit mask on them. All the while that person is trying to spit and bite everyone within distance of you. It is a two to three person task in order to do that. So she wasn't just aggressive. She was, let's call it what it is. She was trying to assault the officers who were trying to arrest her, book her, take her fingerprints, do what they needed to do. Let's be truthful. If she was not a district attorney, they wouldn't have been so nice about it. She would have been face down on the floor. She would have been tased. She, they wouldn't have gone to those lengths because that's the polite way to deal with someone who tries to assault a police officer. I know it doesn't sound polite, but that is polite. The real, the other way to do it is just take her down hard, just straight down, tackle her to the ground, rub her face in the ground, and, and put the cuffs and the leg irons on her that way and don't give a damn about the fact that she's spitting and biting and take some teeth out in the process because that's the reality of how you react to someone spitting and biting on police officers. And that's just the reality of how I've seen it go down so many times. Um, so next they stated that the video of her detention ended up getting released to the public by a local Austin radio station. And that is how they, her, the whole situation was released to the public. Officers, however, have stated they did not actually observe any spitting. And one jailer stated that it was actually only used to protect her identity, which is Difficult for me to believe because most spit masks are clear or opaque so you can see the person's face specifically because you need to be able to see if they can breathe, if they're having any difficulties so that you can take it off in case anything is happening. So it's hard for me to believe that because, you know, like I said, if someone's choking, if they have medical conditions, they're having difficulty breathing, you wouldn't be able to see that if it was not a, if it was a white shield or if it was tan. So normally they're transparent or they are clear because you need to be able to see what's happening 
you know, in case something is going on. So I find that very difficult to believe. D.A. Lemberg was charged with a DWI to which she pleaded guilty and was uh, sentenced to 45 days in jail. Nice. Nice. I know a lot of people would like to be able to only do 45 days in jail for spitting and biting at police. And a $4,000 fine. Ultimately, she served 22 days of that sentence. Her driver's license was suspended for 180 days and she waived her right to an appeal. Lemberg wrote a letter from jail to the residents of Travis County apologizing for her behavior and vowing to get professional help and not seek a third term in 2016. A few days after the arrest, Austin attorney Carrie O'Brien filed a civil lawsuit to remove her from office under a rarely used state law that allows for removal of certain public officers for intoxication. In June 2013, Rick Reed, a former prosecutor, had filed a criminal complaint against Lemberg for abuse of office due to her threats and apparent attempts to obtain special treatment on the night of her arrest. The grand jury eventually concluded her actions while in custody did not, con did not constitute official misconduct and Lemberg was no billed. And those, those of you who are not familiar with the American legal system, a no bill basically means, man, we couldn't figure it out. So you're not guilty. You're not free. You're not innocent. It's just, eh, it's, it's a no decision. It's a whatever you're free to go. Cause, uh, so a grand jury is what we impanel to decide if we're going to take you to trial. So we've pressed charges, but we want to see if we have enough evidence to go to trial. So if we think the case is iffy, but it's, it, it's, we're not sure, we go to a grand jury to double check. And if a grand jury gives us back a no bill, a no bill means, meh, it, it, it's not, we don't have a decision either way. We can't say it's a no-go, but we can't say it is a go. It's a meh, it's a wash. So a no bill on a grand jury is what was returned and so um, the civil suit did go ahead in uh, December 2013 and the judge declined to remove her from office. Meanwhile, almost simultaneously in the neighboring Williamsburg County and Leander football is a religion and Greg Kelly is the high school's star safety. But according to authorities, a child alleged that Greg put his pee-pee in his mouth on two occasions at a daycare operated by Shama McCarthy. McCarthy, a booster of the Leander Lions football team, had been allowing Kelly, a friend and classmate of McCarthy's son, Jonathan, to stay at their home in nearby uh, Leander. Now, on August 12, 2013, Kelly is arrested and charged with sexual assault of a child. Now, he was arrested at the school in front of everybody, which is wildly inappropriate. You should not be arresting. I don't care that he technically was an adult because he was 18. They should not be arresting someone at their high school in front of all the kids, all the teachers. That's just wildly inappropriate. Uh, Cedar Park high school is where he went um now the reason that he was staying uh with jonathan uh mccarthy's mother is because he was his mother was in the hospital with a brain tumor so that's why he was staying uh with mrs mccarthy so uh, right after he was arrested a couple days later, a second boy came forward to accuse um, him of forcing him to touch his penis. Now, Sergeant Daly didn't the 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 off the he's a sergeant. I want to call him a detective. Uh, he didn't actually come forward. What happened was Sergeant Daly cold called the daycare parents and noted that sexual abuse had been reported and wanted to talk to their children. So, 
finally, he found a parent that obliged. Now, this is a massive red flag. And the reason that it's a red flag is because it immediately taints your witness pool. It immediately taints your interviews because you have called the parents and told the parents that they're what your investigation is about. You've told the parents that there is sexual abuse and it gives the parents the opportunity to lead the child, to have conversations, open into conversations, to um, give the children ideas. And you've already screwed up the interview before you've even had it. And so this is the first red flag. This is the first way he went wrong. You never cold call for witnesses, never. You either want them to come forward. It's supposed to be an outcry for a reason. If you cold call for witnesses like that, it's especially sexual assault, If it's, it's a no-go. You can cold call for a witness, but not for a victim. You don't cold call for victims. It's wildly inappropriate. Now, during the initial interview with social workers, the second victim repeatedly stated he had not been touched by Greg. The worker leaves the room and Sergeant Daly entered the room with his gun holstered on clear display and with a second adult. This is not appropriate. When you interview a child, it is also always to be done one-on-one. -on -one. The child needs to feel safe. The child needs to feel comfortable when the dynamic changes and the child feels outnumbered by the adults in the room they will not feel comfortable and they will not want to open up to you so immediately you see the child's um, demeanor change there's video of this interview you see the child's demeanor change he immediately shuts down the moment both adults enter the room what makes it 500 times worse is Sergeant Daly is four times this child's size and his gun is visible. The child is terrified. He backs into a corner and he cowers down. The interview is done. He's not going to get anything. The moment he walked into that room with another person and his gun visible, he destroyed any chance he had of getting anything out of that child. Everything he did by entering that room and trying to talk to that child after the social worker was wrong. Then Sergeant Daly started interviewing the child. He used suggestive wording and leading questions, scaring the child. Surprisingly, people during this interview, other things that he did, um, he just never gave the child a chance. He not only was he using leading questions and surprising, like he, when you do an interview with a child, especially with a victim, any type of, anytime you interview someone who's been traumatized, you're supposed to use open ended questions. How was your day today? You start simple. You talk about general questions, general topics. So, can you tell me about Greg? How do you know Greg? How often do you see Greg? Those kind of things. So they have to tell you a story. They need to give you a narrative. You don't want to ask yes and no questions. You want them to tell you their story. The questions need to be open-ended that way. So that's what they're doing. They're telling you their story. They can't be leading. You can't say, did tell me how Greg touched your penis. You can't say, tell me about the time Greg touched your penis. Those are all the things that are going to destroy the interview. Those are all the things that you've already put suggestions in your head. Now, the reason that these things are wrong um, if you've seen the documentary about this case on Showtime called Outcry, there is an expert in forensic interviewing who actually breaks down the interview and all the things wrong. And she's spot on. Um, as those of you who have listened to this podcast before know that I've done foster care reviews for social services. So that and working in inpatient, I've done 
these type of dealing with children with trauma. And um, one of the biggest things that she talks about, she points out, and she has done research in how to actually plant ideas in children's heads. And she's done controlled groups and studies. And she showed a video where they actually sat a little girl down in a room and they had her talking to another adult. All they did in that room was color. They talked. They brought her back and they asked her open-ended questions about what she did with the adult. She answered, honestly, everything was fine. Then they started to ask. Then they asked her one leading question, just one. And they said, did she touch you? The girl said no, but then they brought her back a week later and they said, so what did you do with her? And she said, well, she touched me. They videotaped everything. So they know for a fact that was a lie. But the point was to show how incredibly easy it is to plant suggestions in children's heads. All you have to do is mention something once even if it never happened, and even if you were not telling the child that it did happen to them. All you had to do was ask if it happened in the form of a question, and the child will start parroting it back to you in the form of a statement. And that is the danger of this type of interviewing. Children are people pleasers by nature. They watch your body language and they want to make you happy. So when you ask that type of leading question, they see that you're anxious and you're looking for a positive response. So the next time that you say something with that kind of wording in it, they're going to parrot it back to you to make you happy. That is what he was doing to this boy. So, the boy's scared, he's frightened, he wants to get this big scary man off of him. So the other thing he started doing was asking him only yes or no questions and he was doing it in a way so the boy really was emotionally backed in a corner and so to get the scary man, he kind of did the opposite. So not people pleasing, but out of survival, the boy was telling him what he wanted to hear to get him away from it. So basically it was, did he touch your penis? Yes. Just to get the man, the big scary man with the gun away from him. It was survival mode. This poor boy was in fight or flight. And I'm going to say whatever I have to say to get the scary man away from me. It was horrible. And the specialist, she clearly says, she said, this is the worst case of a of an interview with a child she'd ever seen. She's the most horrible, botched interview that she had ever seen. Um, and it was, it was pretty bad. I've seen, I've seen some bad interviewing um, with kids. I've, I've seen some tainted things. I've seen some child custody cases with, you know, parents trying to do false allegations of child abuse, but this was, was pretty bad. This, this was pretty bad. Um, now, during when the allegations were first made, people came from all over the state and in some cases all over the country in order to support to support Greg. And a lot of people believe that the reason people came from all over the state of Texas to support him is probably because they had seen this before with the Kellers and they didn't want it to happen again. Now, July 8th, 2014, his trial began and there was no physical evidence. Now, they expected them to reach a decision based on the testimony of just these two boys. Now, the first boy testified. He repeated everything he said word for word. But then the second day, the second victim recanted. And, and it was, it, it wasn't like he, he just said, you know, no, I changed, it was changed my mind. It was very clear. He said, no, it was just straight up. No. Did he touch you? No. Did this happen? No, it was no, 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 no. Categorically, no. Once there is nobody there to intimidate him, the answer is no. And that is a testament to his parents because when something like that happens, it means the parents didn't go back and talk to him about it. They didn't go over it with him. They didn't drive it home. They didn't try to get more answers. They didn't try to get more details. And that is good. It's very important. 
when your child goes through a trauma like this, when something happens, you don't want to pick at them. You don't want to dig at the wound. You want them to be able to process it in their own time and their own way. You want them to be able to deal with it. Yes, you want them to deal with it in a healthy manner. You do want to be able for them to get help if and when it's necessary, but it is important it's in their own time and their own way. So if something like this happens, it is essential that you're not constantly trying to draw out information with them because it is very normal for a child to shut down and maybe block out a lot of details. And especially a very young child, they won't even understand a lot of what happened to them. And so you trying to get details out, A, a lot of times in a very young child, you won't even understand what they're trying to tell you because they're not understanding what happened. And B, they just may shut down and may not, one, be able to remember or deal with the memory of it and you could make it worse. So it's a testament to the parents that they didn't um, try and force him to talk about it. They didn't go over it with him. They weren't constantly, you know, constantly asking those questions and, and um, trying to get extra details and things that he was able to just go back to what he initially said when asked, you know, these questions with no pressure and no kind of intimidation that he was able to go back to his straightforward and honest answer that no, this never happened. You know, I, you asked me, my parents were worried something happened to me. They brought me here to you, you know, nothing happened. So, um, this is very devastating to their case because now they only have the testimony of one person. Everybody thinks that, you know, now he's going to be exonerated. So now the woman who owns the daycare, um, where the assault allegedly took place, she testifies that she believes that he's innocent. And then the sergeant who interviewed the victim admits that he asked leading questions. So everybody is happy. They think this is great. He's going to be acquitted. No, he is found guilty. After 12 hours of deliberations, he's found guilty of two counts of super aggravated sexual assault of a child and he's sentenced to 25 years in prison without the possibility of parole. He appeals multiple times. With his appeals running low, the DA starts to show her true colors. She gets arrested in 2015 after she spoke to the Austin American Statesman, which is a newspaper about an unrelated murder case in violation of a gag order. Spectrum News in Austin reported on the story at the time. A judge found her guilty of contempt of court and she was sentenced to 10 days in jail. She also had to pay a $500 fine. Then she was sanctioned by the State Bar of Texas in 2016 for professional misconduct. And for those of you who aren't American, um, what that means is it's like getting fined. It's like getting in trouble for um, being unprofessional as a lawyer. Um, a local news station reported on this, saying that in addition to violating the gag order, she was also accused of intentionally withholding evidence from defense attorneys in that case, which led to a mistrial. The State Bar of Texas put her on probation during her last 18 months in her office due to misconduct. She was jailed again later that year for four days, also for being in contempt of court. But this wasn't even the beginning of the issues that District Attorney Judy had been on, dis that had been disciplined for. In 2011, she was disciplined for releasing confidential information from an executive session with the county commissioner while she was working as a county attorney. Following her 2016 sanction, she said, I plan to finish my term. I have absolutely no plans to buckle to the will of my political enemies and resign early. They're simply wasting everybody's time. Her successor... Williamson County District Attorney Sean Dick stated 
in 2017 that the office improperly prosecuted Kelly and he called it a catastrophic failure. The Austin American statesman reported that Dick said he wouldn't even have tried Kelly had he been the district attorney at the time. After she left office, Dick noted that the district attorney's office lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash seized from asset forfeitures due to administrative error while she was district attorney. In May, 2000, May 25, May 25th, 2017, authorities reopen his case and identify a new suspect. Williamson County District Attorney Sean Dick received credible evidence that caused Texas Rangers to investigate the case. New evidence indicate, are you guys ready for this? They indicate Jonathan McCarty whose mother operated the in-home daycare where Greg was living may have been involved in the sexual assault. A hearing is scheduled for, um, for alternate suspect Jonathan McCarty in June of 2017. Affidavits revealed that a child who knew both Kelly and McCarty had trouble telling the two apart and that McCarty had told a second person it was he who abused the boy. Kelly's defense suggested it was possible the four-year-old at the center of the case may have mistakenly identified his abuser based on the similarities between the two. Also, it is revealed the police never stepped foot in the daycare. They never went to the scene of the crime. They never went to the room the child described. Had they done that, they would have seen it was not Greg's room. It was Jonathan's. The only testimony against Greg was the words of a four-year-old who only knew him as someone named Greg. But did anyone ever show him a photo of Greg? and ask him to identify him? Did they ever give him a lineup? Did they ever give him a photo array? No. That right there, no ID. They never got an ID of the assailant. August 2nd, 2017, uh, family members identify on the hearing. Uh, Kelly's brother uh, testifies that Kelly was with him helping family members move on the day the crime is thought to have been committed. Cedar Park Police Detective Chris Daly testifies that he thinks he did a thorough job and stands by how he investigated the claims. Prosecutors say that, see I did it again, I called him detective, he's a sergeant. <laughs> Prosecutors indicate that Daly failed to do several things during the investigation he should have, including not investigating the scene of the crime or seizing any evidence the boy stated that was used in the assault. On the third, Texas, a Texas Ranger said there's a third suspect, but he also said that Kelly cannot be ruled out. Texas Ranger Cody Mitchell said that the initial investigation of the case wasn't fair and cites more than a dozen lapses in the investigation. Mitchell also discussed that there were photographs on McCarty's uh, computer he believed constituted child porn. Now, this was absolute and total bull. Um, all that it was is a picture with the kid. It was just a picture of him sitting next to a, a, a kid. It, there was, like, if that's the case, I guess I'm going to jail because I know all kinds of kids and I take pictures with kids that's not child porn and even the investigator states that or sean dick states that um it is n nothing it's not child porn and the only other thing that was on the computer was regular pornography and that is meaningless a judge ruled on the third day of the hearing that kelly would not be released on bond as she is waiting the findings of fact and conclusions of law now keith hampton is his new attorney once um, that the uh, original DA, Miss District Attorney Duty, um, stepped down, 
Keith Hampton, who was also, as you remember, the lawyer for the Kellers who got them exonerated, he took over the case for the appeals for um, Kelly, for Greg Kelly. So when Keith Hampton um, is saying that they decided to have a conference so they can work together because uh, the district attorney Dick and uh, Keith Hampton actually both want the same outcome. So they have a conference to try and see how they can work together to exonerate someone they both agree is innocent. On the 18th, uh, Greg Kelly's porn, his not relevant pictures, um, they're discussed in the district attorney officially holds a press conference and says they're not relevant. Um, that the Texas Rangers um, testimony about um, having pornography and the picture that he said was pornography is not actually pornography. Um, he said the only thing that was a new re revelation is the possibility of a third individual. And the picture he was referencing is a picture of a child with a selfie stick. And nothing about it is relevant. Um, on the 22nd, based on that, Greg Kelly is released on bond. Three years after he was convicted of sexually assaulting someone, uh, Greg Hampton then, in a court filing, seeks to question whether his original attorney uh, secretly and improperly worked against him. Um, six years after... He was on November 6, 2019, six years after he was accused of sexually assaulting a young boy, the state's highest criminal court overturned his conviction. That was when the nightmare finally ended for him. Um, so he was out on bond for two years before he finally got a an official determination before his appeal was finally ruled on. Um, so what they determined is that he was innocent. Um, they officially determined that he was innocent, that no reasonable person would have found him um, guilty. And the reason that they determined that, there were two reasons. One, they determined that there was misconduct on the part of the district attorney. They determined that there was also not a proper investigation done by the police. They also determined that his own attorney did not work in his interest because what was found out he knew when he hired her that she had defended Jonathan McCarthy before. What they believe once they found out that they think that the child mistook the two, um, what came out during the trial as well is that Jonathan McCarthy was arrested for um, violating his probation. But during the trial, a 15-year-old girl came forward and um, had him charged with sexual assault. And they also suspected him of other sexual assaults. Um, so what he did not know is that she knew that he had a proclivity to sexual crimes. So they believe that the reason that she chose the trial strategy she did and that she did not consider even trying to object to certain things or question why certain things were not done is because she wasn't actually thinking about protecting him. She was thinking of protecting Jonathan McCarthy and doing whatever she could to ensure he never became a suspect. So she wasn't as focused on, on actually protecting and exonerating her client as she should have been. As far as the um, police, they we outlined the issues with the police case and what they did wrong. Um, and then as far as the district attorney, the district attorney had issues in which they knew that the police had not done these things. And in the United States, you have a duty as a prosecutor to disclose this to the defense. So the defense had a right to know that they never went to the scene of the crime. They never collected any evidence. They never did an ID. 
they had a right to know these things during the trial and they were never notified. None of these things were ever told to them. So that's how the district attorney committed misconduct. So, um, what, uh, despite, so Kelly now 25, um, became a student at Texas, um, a and U. He became a walk on so that, um, he could try out with the Longhorns. Um, despite doing extremely well, um, he ran a 4.6 second 40 uh, yard dash. Texas didn't add any walk-ons that year, so it's not necessarily that he didn't make it. They just didn't have a slot for him. So because they didn't add any walk-ons and also COVID hit, he ended up in the NCAA transfer portal. So what that means is he still has a chance to play college football, guys. Um, if we get lucky, maybe this year or next year, he'll be able to transfer as a walk-on to another school. Um, so hopefully, cause his dream is to go from, uh, college football to pro football. So he does have a shot still. Now, other people didn't fare as well as him three years after her 2016 sanction. Unfortunately, in April, 2019, um, District Attorney Duty died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in her condo. Um, the Rockport pilot reported this. She was only 54. Um, so, obviously, the weight of where she was, she it's clear to me she was struggling. And there just wasn't anybody there to help her and be there for her. Cedar Park Police Sergeant Christopher Daly resigned a day after city officials sent a complaint to the Williamson County District Attorney saying that a new documentary, the one that I spoke about, the outcry documentary on Showtime, Gray Kelly's show, case showed that Daly committed perjury. Um, and it, it, it does. It, I remember I was watching it and I could not believe it. I absolutely could not believe it. They highlighted it in the documentary. I, I've said this before, I have police officers in my family and I could not believe it. Um, one of those police officers, my Uncle Bill, he worked in special victims. And I think uh, ha had he been watching that, he would, <laughs> he would have lost it. Um, so yeah, um, what happened was uh, Mayor Corbin Van Arsdale and City Council member Mike Guerra said that Daly lied under oath during a 2017 hearing about the investigation. In a portion of Daly's testimony, um, he stated that there had been ongoing calls for the lead investigator to resign over the way he handled it. The complaint that they lodged said that he falsely denied ever speaking to a attorney, Stacey Matthews, who was a prosecutor in 2013, about a possible second child victim. Daly denied telling Matthews that bringing charges against Kelly involving a second child would strengthen the case involving the first victim. Matthews, who is now a Williams County District Judge, testified during the hearing that Daly called her when she was a prosecutor and according to a transcript, Daly told her the second child had made no outcry against Kelly during two interviews at the Williamson County Children's Advocacy Center, including the one Daly had conducted himself. This is what I'm telling you. When a child only says yes or no you back them in the corner and he says yes to appease you that's not an outcry an outcry statement is when someone tells you the narrative of what happens to them when you fish for a victim you're not getting an outcry an outcry is when someone comes to you freely and tells you that they have been victimized when someone comes to you freely and wants to get help and, and they, they that's why it's called an outcry you are outcrying for help it is not an outcry if you bully someone into it that's why he said there was no outcry 
because he knew that boy was only saying yes to get him out of his face. Matthew said she recommended to Daly that he not file charges against Kelly regarding the second child. She testified that Daly told her filing charges involving the second child would strengthen the case. So there you have it. That police officer is a piece of garbage human being. The fact that he terrified, probably scarred that child for life so that he could falsely imprison this man is disgusting. The reality of this is just ridiculous. Like, he did no investigation. He took a phone call and decided the person had to be guilty. That's why it is so important to actually look into the facts and find out the truth because when you talk to a witness, it doesn't it's traumatic. A witness, a victim, it's a traumatic experience. Whether you're witnessing a crime, whether the crime is being perpetrated against you, it's traumatic. And it is difficult sometimes to get to the heart of what happened. Sometimes the way that people relay information to you isn't linear, like when you watch TV. Um, it's not always like special victims where eventually you're gonna make sense of how they're telling it to you you're gonna figure out the there's gonna be a key eventually so to speak we're gonna unlock the code to their mind doesn't always play out like that sometimes it's always nonsense sometimes you just can't figure it out and there is no there is nothing there that's gonna make sense of it you know so Sometimes you just you interview someone who has been victimized and there is no way of making sense of what they saw because their brain has protected them in a way so that they don't have to relive it. And that's just the reality of how people deal with trauma. And a lot of police officers are not equipped to deal with that because they're taught to go about things in an analytical linear manner and when you are interviewing trauma victims it doesn't work that way our brains don't work that way even as adults we don't work that way uh, some people are just not equipped to deal with trauma and they shut down and even long term can't deal or process it and so you know they don't hear what they want to hear they don't get the answers they want to hear and they try and force it and that's where they start making things up and hearing what they want to hear. And it's unfortunate. And that's how we get to places like this. Um, you know, sometimes you just can't prosecute someone. Sometimes the case has to be left unsolved because that is just better than traumatizing anyone more or forcing them and ending up putting an innocent person in jail. It's unfortunate, but it's the truth. And it's the best and right thing to do um so that's what this and and also the keller case boiled down to um the keller case went far beyond this because they just like this they didn't cold call a school if you listened to the other podcast they basically just went to the school and talked to they went to the daycare a much much larger daycare because it wasn't a whole a home daycare and they just interviewed the whole daycare <laughs> which is far worse and that's that's how you create a panic and and a mob mentality and so it's super important um if if you suspect or you come to a situation where you think that a child has been abused or mistreated in any way um you need to call um a social service um uh, department in your state or your local town um, or if you're in another country whatever you have for social services and have them interview the child don't pressure them don't ask them any uh, open and you may think that you're not asking them any leading or open-ended questions but anytime you ask a question that has any informational pieces in it anything about the situation or about the person even bringing up their name you're going to give them pieces of information that they're going to throw back and parrot at people. So it's best for you to just call them, let them know 
what you're suspicious of or what's making you anxious or what's making you have a bad vibe or a bad feeling and say, I just don't want to taint the interview. You know, I didn't want to plant suggestions or ask leading questions. I didn't know how about, you know, talking to them or asking them what happened or did anything happen to you? So, you know, can somebody come and, and interview them and working with social services, they will send someone when you have a suspicion of abuse um, to come and interview your child so that they you can find out. Um, and like I, they, you saw, um, medical, you, medically they can, medical exams on children can be misleading sometimes and it's, it's why you wanna go straight to DCF and then your child services can do the interview and do the medical and, and figure out what happened and they can do a proper checking and, and go through everything and just, you know, make sure that you go through the proper channels and also make sure that if it, if you do suspect someone in a position of power, please don't go through the school or please don't like go up and down the halls of the school. Please don't start making a phone tree and calling out parents and telling everybody in the neighborhood because you could you know, cause a panic and then they could get back to you and say, oh, she just, you know, was parroting something from a show or she was just parroting back something someone told her. And then you could be painting someone in a light and hanging them from a tree and lynching them and that nothing happened to your child. You know, don't start casting stones before you actually know where you're throwing them. You need to wait until you have all of the information. So, you know, Protect your children, but go about it in the right manner. You know, be safe, be vigilant, but go about it with the proper information and the proper way. So um, next time, we are going to look at the case of a woman in Australia who many people knew should stay away from the men but somehow just didn't seem to feel the need to be more, I don't know, vigilant with their warnings to the men to stay away from her. And somehow she just ended up butchering one of her boyfriends. And that was not somehow the worst thing she did to him. So until then, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.